So we are going there today. I'm going to talk about sex in church. You're thinking, wait, I thought the uh, married midweek was Wednesday night. What's this about? We're talking about your personal morality. We're talking about elements in the room and topics that we might not want to talk about because they're awkward, they're difficult, they're uncomfortable. They're things that everybody knows about, but we don't necessarily want to talk about. Personal morality, it has to do with your standard, your conduct of right and wrong. Everybody has a standard, and and even, even your own standard right now, even your own standard of right and wrong moral behavior, it involves sex, but it involves honesty and truth and your conduct in business and everything you do, conduct of right and wrong, even according to your own standard, are you living up to that? But talking about standards, are you in fact, do you have a standard of morality? And see, this is, this is one of the elephants in the room, the very standard of morality that we hold. Is it the highest quality standard that is going to set us up for the best possible future. Because here's the reality. We have decisions that we're making right now, all of us. We have decisions and choices that we're making in our present. In our present, right now, choices, decisions of our moral conduct. That presently that we're doing, that is down the road, it's going to be the past that is going to show up in our future. Was that too much for you? That down the road, and you see this all the time in in marriage counseling sessions with people that were cruising along in their teen years and in their campus years and their singles years, and they they had a standard, whatever it was, it was was a standard that, that was going on around them that maybe they didn't even think about, but it was a standard of morality, and they were in a present, and they were making choices, and they were making decisions, but that present ended up becoming a past that now they have to sort out and they have to live with. Is the moral standard that you're living by, is it the best possible for setting up your future without regrets and without baggage and without damage? Or is it just a standard that happens to be kind of mindlessly what you're living out? We're talking about that and we're talking about sex in that conduct in that context. But, but just a couple general points reviewing, if you weren't with us last week, about dealing with these elephants that are in the room, these large topics. There's a great passage in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. These conversations, and that's what he's wanting us to have, is not just to go in there and blow in and blow up and blow out, but to, but to have a conversation. And that takes wisdom. And a conversation that's really going to be meaningful is going to have to take a lot of grace and then seasoned, not just a truckload, backloader dumped on, 
but seasoned with salt. To get specific, we're going to need the wisdom of humility. Because elements are, are big topics. They're big issues. They're larger than us. And when we talk about sex, when we talk about sexuality, ours or somebody else's, we're going to need to approach that with humility. It may be a talk that a parent needs to have with their child. You're going to want to approach that with some humility. The humility that's aware of how you might be perceived in the context of that conversation. Or it might be a child having a talk about that subject with the parent. Better to approach it with some humility. Or a roommate might need to have a talk with another roommate. Maybe there's some things going on in the life of one of your roommates, and it's the elephant in the room. And you're going to need to bring that up, but do it. Ease into that thing with some humility. Not a holier-than-thou self-righteousness, but a, hey, I'm just one sinner. I'm in this struggle. I'm in this battle just like you, but we need to talk. Or it might be with a coworker. Or it might be with a classmate. Or it might be with a neighbor. It might be somebody that, that God just happens to throw you into a random conversation. And there it is. There's the opportunity. And because we're talking about big, huge issues in people's lives, we're going to need to approach it with humility. Or it might be, as in the video, you with your Father in heaven. Maybe it's a talk. Dealing with the elephant in the room is a conversation that you need to have with your Father in heaven. And the reason that that conversation hasn't occurred yet with you and God about sex is a lack of humility. It's just a good place to start. The wisdom of humility. And then grace. Lots and lots of grace. Because it hurts to get stepped on by an elephant, doesn't it? It, it hurts, and, and I need to have the grace when my big issue steps on you, and you're hurting because of my issue. And I need to have grace when your big issue steps on me. It hurts when these big issues, and nothing, nothing more painful than sex when you get stepped on by it, and there's going to need to be a whole lot of grace in these conversations. And then the seasoning is the truth. And elephants can't be pushed around. You can't just go in there and just have your way with them and just say, this is the way it's going to be. It doesn't work in your life, and it's not going to work in the lives of other people that we need to have these conversations with. And so it's the seasoning of truth. It's truth well-placed. Yes, do speak the truth. The truth is needed. Only the truth will set us free. But do bring the truth in as a seasoning with salt in the conversation. And over time, those elephants can be trained. So we're talking about sex, and we're going we're gonna to approach this from looking at two of the, the great myths. There's many, but we're going to look at two of the great myths that are going on in our culture around us and that we absolutely get affected by because, because culture is all around us. And, and I heard recently, how do you tell a fish that he's wet? That's all the fish knows. So it's in his culture. It's around him. And, and our culture on this, this issue of sex is all around us. And it affects us. But there's two great myths. The first one is God is anti-sex. 
That's basically an idea out there that, you know, sex happens, but in God's mind, it's a, it's a huge mess up. It's a huge accident. And when sex happens among people, it's like God's with the angel Gabriel. Oh man, there it is again. Oh no. Oh no. Let's not look at that. You know, that, that somehow God is, is uncomfortable. And where did this get kind of showed up in, in human nature somewhere, but, but it wasn't part of the script that, that somehow God is anti-sex and there's, there's nothing really relevant in the ways of God that would apply to the real world and our real issues and our real feelings and our real emotions and our real society and our real goings-on. But the truth is, God created sex and he intends it for people to enjoy. It's, it's his invention. It's his in design. And from the beginning, he created it for human enjoyment. We go to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we read in verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So as God makes man, as he creates them, he brings a blessing to him. Now, what was that blessing? Being created, being alive, that would certainly be a blessing. Being in the midst of this amazing garden, that would be a blessing. Subduing the earth, that would be incredible. That would be a blessing. But really, you know what the real blessing was? God said, be fruitful. Now, I don't know how long it's been since your sex ed class in school, but being fruitful means having a sexual relationship. God said, I'm going to bless you now. Have sex. That's what he said, because if you're going to be fruitful, then you're going to have to have sex to accomplish that all-important task of being fruitful and filling the earth. That was the blessing. The original blessing was in God's design. We move to chapter 2 of Genesis. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Skipping down, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God, in the very beginning, said, I'm going to bless you. Be fruitful. Have sex. But beyond just that initial blessing, there is much, much more to it. There is the loneliness of mankind, the loneliness of Adam, and God seeking and creating and fashioning a helper just specifically suitable. We're talking anatomically. We're talking emotionally. We're talking physically. God created and made a helper just perfectly suitable for Adam to address his loneliness and to give him the companionship in the garden. As great as the garden was, it was the companionship of the woman with the man and that they would have this bond 
And they would, in that bond, share one flesh, have sex together, and in that, they would feel no shame. They would be naked, and they would feel no shame. Imagine the security, the trust, the safety, the confidence, the vulnerability, the intimacy that's described in just that brief sentence, that they were there, they were one, and there was no shame. Naked and no shame. Imagine that. That's the original design that God had, something that was such a blessing, something that would meet the deepest needs for companionship and intimacy and confidence and security, all going on there. And then to draw from the book of Proverbs, lest we think that it's not an ongoing blessing, Proverbs 5 and verse 18, may your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. I know, I know you're thinking, wait, I thought the marriage retreat was in November. I think you got the wrong notes, bro, for this one. You, you, you grabbed your marriage retreat notes instead. No, no, this is, this is important that we get this. The myth is that, that God's anti-sex and anything you find in the Bible is just going to be no fun. It's just, it's just not, not going to be where we're at. The reality is God invented it, and he intends for it to be awesome. He intends for it to be great. He intends for it to be, his words here in his word, intoxicating. That's how good God designed it to be. And there's a lot more in the scriptures on that. But let's get to the second myth now. Second myth, when it comes to sex, there is no absolute right or wrong. I mean, hey, if it feels good, baby, then do it. It's really just a personal decision that a person has to make about themselves. You can't impose your rules and your ideas, your Puritan values on me, your church. You can't impose that on me. I've got to decide for myself. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So let's say it's rape. Well, no, no. Then of course, no, that, that, that would, there would be a value applied there. Why not we said that there's no absolute right and wrong? What about abuse of an adult to a minor? What about that? What, wait, what about if the minor consents? What if the adult actually convinces the minor and the minor's consenting? Would that be, you know, anything goes? No absolutes, right or wrong? What about, what about if it's an adult, but the adult is somehow so broken and so damaged and so vulnerable that somebody could actually manipulate and prey upon them to get what they wanted. Would that fit into your, hey, there's no absolute right or wrong? Let's face it, everybody has some absolute right or wrong. Everybody lives with the code when it comes to sex, 
lives with the coat and all other things, that there are some absolute beyond the circumstance, beyond the emotion, beyond the, the sex drive of the person involved. They're out there. It's just somebody else's issues, not mine. Here's the truth. Sex is absolutely designed for a man and a woman in marriage. That's the absolute. And we reference the words and the teaching of Jesus on this. Matthew 19. There's an interaction that took place in the life of Jesus that sheds wonderful light from the Messiah, from the Savior of the world, on this topic. In Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Let's just stop there because that's the thinking. Right now it's applied to divorce as, the, as these teachers of the law are coming to him. It's, it's applied to divorce, but it's that larger teaching of there are no absolute for any and every reason. I sort it out. What are my reasons? As long as I have good reasons, as long as you know my reasons are, are fine with me, then it must be okay. This is the context that they enter into this conversation with Jesus. And I'm glad they did because Jesus references and gives us some really good teaching that will help us in the realm of, are there absolutes that that apply to this? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, admittedly, this is Jesus Christ laying this out. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not somebody who has has said, yeah, I, I... I believe in Jesus, then, then this isn't, this isn't going to be an, an absolute. This isn't going to work for you. And all I, would, all I would suggest is that read the teachings of Jesus. Read the life of the teachings of Jesus. Read about him and see him in context as he walked there. See how he treated people. Take this teaching in the larger context of everything else he did and see if it won't maybe make some sense to you in, in keeping with the other things that he says that make so much sense, sense in an otherwise confusing world. But as Jesus talks on the subject, he goes back to creation. And he references, first of all, the absolute of creation, the absolute of male and female. Now, it's laughable that our society is even trying to do away with that absolute. No, there really isn't male and female. Here is Caitlin. Who was she? I don't know, but you know, we don't have male and female anymore. We have no absolutes. Well, yeah, right. At, at, At the creation. We're talking at the basic creation of male and female. There is a difference there. And there is a difference anatomically. There is a difference in the very makeup of men and women that God designed from the very beginning. So it's between a man 
and a woman. That's an absolute. The man will leave his father and mother. The idea is there is a coming of ageness here. There is a maturity here. There is an ability to handle a responsibility here. Because where he's going to get to is not just a one-night stand thing. That there is a responsibility that goes along with it. And the person needs to be able to be of the maturity. That he has left his mother and father. He's responsible. He can provide. He's, He's a person of substance now. And he can then handle the responsibility that goes along with has left his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. That's the sexual union. And that's the context. There's a union of a vow, of a promise, of a till death do us part, of a this is not a one-time thing, but this is a forever thing. And in that context, there is the sexual union, the becoming of flesh. And then he goes on to say that God joins them together Let no man separate. There's also something spiritual that then happens along around that time. Now, we can defy that. We can mix up the order. We can change the process. But Jesus gives the way that would take that Garden of Eden experience for Adam and Eve together, no shame. And he says, you want to recreate that? This is the context in which it will be recreated. The safety, the security, the vulnerability. That's the context. Anything else outside of that, you're going to experience more of a curse than a blessing. Outside of that, different than that, then you're going to experience things that are actually really going to damage your life. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He sets the context and he says, I have the right to do anything. That's, that's how some people approach this subject. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. Just because you can do it, just because they have the right, you have the right to do it doesn't mean that it's the most helpful, the most beneficial. We have this idea in our society that, that says, hey, you know, all ideas, all ideas are okay. My idea, your idea, who's to say that, you know, we, we, got, we can't be judgmental of ideas. Well, yeah, there, there are ideas that are of higher quality than other ideas. I think the world has realized that that Nazism isn't that high a quality of an idea. We've grown beyond that. We've kind of figured that out. That there are some ideas. And so the idea, I can do anything I want. Yeah, that's an idea. But but you also have to put alongside that. But is it really going to be helpful? Is it going to be beneficial for me to do it? I have the right to do anything but I will not be mastered by anything. Now see, there's the difference between having a right to it and being enslaved by it. There's the difference of, in all honesty, me saying, I want to choose to do this and saying, I'm addicted. It controls me. It tells me when, where, how, with whom. And he's bringing that out. And then down in verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but ever sins sexually, sins against their own body. Paul is giving the why 
to the what of Jesus. When Jesus said, here's the context. Man, woman, male, female. Leaving home, responsible, able to handle the commitment. A a commitment that we're united till death do us part. There is the enjoyment of the physical union. Now Paul's giving us some reasons why. He says, there's... There's sin, and all sin separates us from God, but there's sin, and then there's sin. And there's sin, he says, that has a damage, an impact on you. And he puts it this way. All other sin's outside, but there's something about sexual sin that affects the person. Think for a minute. When somebody's beat up physically, that's, that's tough. But when somebody's raped, there is something that happens there that is just damage on another level. If somebody is, is yelled at and pushed around and abused in that way in a home, it's, it's, it's devastating. But when somebody is sexually abused... There is something that, that just damages on a deeper level. There are people that are just, they're just pushed right off their axis, right off center, because of something in the realm of sexual abuse that happened in their life. Think about this. How many conversations have I been in, and maybe you've been in some too, and it begins this way. You know, I've never told anybody this before. And I know where those conversations are going. It's they're going to talk about some sexual misstep, some choice they made, some decision they made that involved their sexuality. And there is a level of scarring. There is a level of wounding. There is a level of shame that people carry with them. And they, they feel like they can't, they can't talk about it because it just goes so deep. And so when we sin... We're doing that same kind of thing to ourselves. We kind of get it when, when somebody is victimized by another's actions. But the point of this passage is what we do to ourselves, that there's the same level of scarring and damage that occurs. This is the present choice that you make that is going to be the past that's going to show up in your future. And it, it's going to be there. Because it, it wounds on such a deep level. We like to think, we like to think to ourselves, you know, hey, you know, I agreed, she agreed, he agreed, uh, nobody's hurt, uh, you know, yeah, maybe it's just a one-time thing, but, you know, we do it and then we move on and, and we're adults and everything's okay. It's, it's, it's not like that. There is a damage that occurs in the broader context of 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, 
But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Why does Jesus give these absolutes, male, female, in a responsible relationship, committed for life? That's where sex is the gift to be open, not before, but in marriage. Because... It's not just physical. Oh, that's what we want to believe. Oh, it's just physical. Yeah, I had the urge. Yeah, I had the need. Yeah, I wanted to experiment. Yeah, I wanted to try out. Yeah, he was handsome. Yeah, she was pretty. Yeah, it was, but it was just physical, and, and, and that's it, and, and it's in the past, and it's done. No. It is sexual, sexual sin. It is something much, much deeper than that. It goes to our very personhood. It goes to the very deep psyche of ourselves involving our minds and our emotions and our spirit. And he puts it in the context. He says, you know, like, like when we become Christians and we have a relationship with God and we have our bodies and our bodies are the, the, the place from which we interact with God. And, and now we, we have the indwelling of his spirit. And, and so there's this spiritual connection that goes on. He's saying, you know how that is? You know, we, we, we know God, he's spirit, but we know him in a spiritual way. But our bodies are, are the, the place from where that interaction takes place. He says, well, that's, sex is a lot like that. And in Corinth, they actually had a religion that people would go into the, the pagan temple there and they would have sex with the temple prostitutes. So they even, they even had a religious wrapping up in this. And he says, there is something going on there on a much deeper level than could just be described as, oh, it was just physical. It's spiritual. It goes to the deepest part of who we are. That's the design. That's how God designed it from the very beginning. And like our, our little animated video clip says, it's, it's gone in a bad direction. People have taken sex in a bad direction. And now what we see going on is, is completely unrecognizable for what God intended it to be. Realize some things. There are, for those that, that have that past with this, that, that you, maybe you didn't hear this, maybe nobody made this connection for you early enough, in your life so that you could get, it's not just physical, it's not just going to be a one-time thing, I'm just going to get in and then get out and that's going to be it, that it's going to, it's going to carry with you. Maybe you're one of those people you're, it's, it's being carried with. The same, the same illustration of, of how powerful of a spiritual union it is that, that the two become one flesh, that there's, there's something there's something deeply profound that takes place when two people have sex. That, that there's, there's healing that only God can do by his Holy Spirit on that level. This is why we need God. 
And this is why we need the Holy Spirit of God. There may be need for therapy. There may be need for even medication. There may be need for some other stuff. But there is ultimately a depth of scarring that occurs in our life that only the Spirit of God can minister to. And that's going to take, and I I appreciated Nathan just saying, I just needed to get open in my life. There were things going on in my life, and they were going on for a long time, and I just needed to have some courage and get open. And that would be a great place to begin. Satan works in the darkness. God works in the light. And you kind of have to decide, how long do I want to stay out there in the darkness, being beat up and abused by Satan? And when am I willing to kind of come out into the light and start to get honest so that the work of healing of the Spirit of God on that level that only the Spirit of God can do can minister to you. And then for those that haven't yet gone there, and it may be because you just haven't had the opportunity because you've wanted to, You wanted to, and and if the opportunity, if the the woman had been there, if the man had been there, if the boy had been there, if the girl had been there, uh, by golly, you would would have done it, but it just, the opportunity hadn't presented itself. Or or maybe, you, you know, you just haven't gotten to that place yet where the temptation is that strong. Wherever you might be in that range, man, we're just reaching out for you here. We're reaching out to you here. It is a way, way bigger deal than our society makes it out to be. It's a way bigger deal than your classmates try to make it out to be. It's a way bigger deal than than people in, in the world around us in the media describe it as. Our last slide, sex is more than physical. Sex is sacred. That's the bottom line here. If all you want is something physical, if that's all you think, if that's all you want, then you're just a, you're a sitting duck. You're just, you're just, Satan has you in his sights, in his crosshairs, and he is going to take you out. But know this, there is no scarring like the scarring of sexual sin. There is no damage to your personhood and no need for greater healing than the healing that will need after sexual sin has been committed because it's meant as a sacred thing. And so next time you're, you're tempted and, and it's in a moment of temptation and she may be pretty and he may be great and all, all the thing, uh, you know, it may seem like all the lights are green in the intersection to just fly on through. But just ask yourself. And, 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 and again, I realize that, that, why are we talking about this whole area? It's just impulsive. I don't know what I'm going to do. We'll wait and see Friday night. We'll see how I'm feeling. We'll wait and see what happens. I realize that, that, that there's people that function on that level. It's not, it's not about mind and spirit at all. It's just whatever I feel like doing, that's what I'm going to do. Then, then I just want to plant the seed. Just I want to put it in there somewhere over in some corner of your mind, somewhere that maybe it will grow in a time in your life when you mature enough and you start to get a sense of that the actions and the choices that you make, they're going to show up in your future. 
that this would be there. This would be there, right there. It's, yeah, there's this, this temptation in the moment, but is that all you want? Is that really all? Will you settle for that? Or would you like to experience something of God? Would you like to wait and hold on and stand your ground and have your moral values and wait for something that's sacred? Let's stand and let's sing our final song.